Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. What a joy to preach, but especially to join you in this series, in this remarkable letter of the Apostle Paul. Um, you've been, this is the, the series you opened the church plant with. So you, you've been on a, 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 quite a tour of quite a letter, and to be able to jump into that is, is really, really a privilege. We're going we're gonna to look at Ephesians chapter 6 today, verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. And so look with me as I read. And as I read, remember, this, these are the very words of God. And where God's word is, God is. God's word has all the attributes of God himself. It's not a book. It has all the attributes of God himself. So where his word is, he is. So he's addressing us when we read these precious, powerful words. So let's read them together. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, what a privilege to gather with your people. What a privilege to gather with these people. What a privilege to gather to give you the honor and the praise that you are so worthy of. What an honor, Lord, to gather around your word to be addressed by you. So do that now, Lord. Address us, I pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Not, not too long ago, a friend of mine retired as a colonel from the United States Air Force. And he is the husband of my wife's best friend since she was 12 years old. So we've known them a long time. Uh, we watched his career unfold. He was a fighter pilot. And he's what you would expect from a fighter pilot. He played quarterback. He was a backup quarterback at University of Georgia. That's SEC football. That's real football. Um, I know. 
you have you have good basketball here, but that's that's like real football. And um, <laughs> he was an F-16 pilot. He won awards. He eventually became a Top Gun instructor. Uh, eventually became a squadron commander of F-16 of an F-16 squadron. He was he was a man's man and a great guy and a man who loves the Lord. Of course, I was fascinated by this. I mean, you go into his house and there's his ring. He was on the national championship team. Oh, do you know Herschel Walker? Yeah. Um, you know, you see all these awards on his, on his shelf. And I said, you know, guys just love this. And I asked him about being a pilot. And I asked him about, you know, w- w- what it's like. I asked him about really what it took. What does it take to fly one of these things? And, uh, and I remember what he said. Kind of surprised me. The most important factor for a fighter pilot is situational awareness. Not how big you are, not how strong you are, not how smart you are. Situational awareness. The ability to perceive and process and make decisions about and act upon what is around you. That term was actually first used in the Air Force during the wars with Korea, or the war in Korea and Vietnam, as aerial warfare became more advanced. One writer noted about those pilots in those early wars. They, the pilots, identified having good situational awareness as the decisive factor in air combat engagements. It was, this writer says, the ace factor. It was the ace factor. Survival in a dogfight was typically a matter of observing the opponent's current move and anticipating his next move a fraction of a second before he could observe and anticipate his own. The ace factor. As I talked to him and I thought about this, it occurred to me, (laughs) there's probably few things more important in the Christian life than situational awareness. (laughs) It's a critical factor for every Christian. It's a critical factor for every church. It's a critical factor for pastors. Uh, An ability to perceive and process and make decisions about and act upon our situation. Now, I don't know if you can relate to me, but far too often, I am decidedly unaware of my situation. Uh, in the midst of busy lives, in the midst of hectic schedules, in the midst of abundant responsibilities, heavy responsibilities, even good things, right? Good and godly things, we can be, we can be deluged, can't we? With a barrage of, of circumstances and situations and, and trials and things can be overwhelming, can't they? Things can be perplexing, uh, at times disorienting. I mean, we, we've got bogeys coming every direction, 30,000 feet. Life is just what's coming at me. Maybe just me. I don't know. Um, it, it bewildering. Discouraging. And we're vulnerable. In those moments, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to this. We're vulnerable to misinterpreting our situation. And if we misinterpret our situation, if we fail to be aware of our 
situation, then we can fail to take measures appropriate to the situation. Now, this morning, we're looking at a text that is specifically designed to give us a a well-honed situational awareness. Ephesians 6, as you probably know, is the classic spiritual warfare text, isn't it? Uh, I was in a, in a very charismatic church many years ago, and I think the pastor preached from Ephesians 6 about once a month. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a familiar text to us. And, and if you've been a Christian for a while, then you probably know this text. You're familiar with this text. Uh, you, you can relate to this text. You know. If I asked you, you'd know, yeah, I know, I'm in a battle. We're in a battle, I get that. But that's part of the problem sometimes. We, we, we know we're in the battle. We can be aware that we're in a battle, but not realize the nature of the battle. We don't realize the needs called for in the situation. We're like a guy on a, you know, on a turret that's just shooting everywhere, but you know, we're not sure exactly what we're supposed to do. I'm just going to shoot. You ever feel that way? I do. Well, God in this text wonderfully provides vulnerable Christians, shell-shocked Christians, which we can often be, this text to equip us, to prepare us. This text gives us a sobering reminder of the context in which we live, the context in which we labor, the context in which we struggle often, the context in which we're called to persevere. And The other thing about this text, it gives us hope. It gives us hope because it points us to the provision that God has made for us. He hasn't just dumped us on a battlefield and said, do your best. No, he has made specific provision for us. This text alerts us to that. This text equips us to access that provision that we might navigate this context, that we might glorify God in this context. All right, so I want us to look at this text under three simple headings, three angles to spiritual warfare here that I think will equip us for the battle. And they're real simple. They're real simple. Our call, our context, and our provision. You don't have to write those down. Our call, our context, and our provision. So let's look at it from these three angles. Number one, our call. Our call. The text comes right at us with exhortation, doesn't it? Finally, be strong in the Lord. But that, what I want you to notice is that call, that imperative doesn't come out of nowhere. Its location in the letter to the Ephesians is significant, and I believe it's often overlooked. Uh, This is, and I love coming in on the end of this letter, this is the final section of the letter, the conclusion of a long admonition. You know, Paul turns the corner there, doesn't he? He's he's painted on a huge theological canvas in Ephesians 1 to 3, and then he turns this corner. We have this long admonition from Ephesians 4 to 6. Remember that? And so we come here and we're coming to the conclusion of the second half of the book, the conclusion of this long admonition. Everything has been leading up to this. So don't think of Paul as kind of, you know what, I've I've got one more thing to say. I'm making some random comments here at the end of a letter. This is the climax of the letter. This is the climax of 
the letter to the Ephesians. It's as if Paul, after painting this vast landscape of verses 1 to 3, and then marching us through three chapters, which you've been doing as a church, three chapters of, of specific instructions and encouragements and admonitions and rebukes at times, he, he, he now steps back, he steps back, and he zooms out and puts all of those admonitions that you've been going through as a church, he puts all of that in a cosmic context. Everything he says here, it seems like it comes out of the blue, but everything he says here touches upon things he's already said. We'll look at some of that as we go, but it's now placed in a cosmic perspective and it's, it's marshaled to provide us with a final resounding, we could say, a call to arms. It's actually the title of this message, A Call to Arms. And, and we see our call it's our first point here, right at the outset. Um, he begins with a chief admonition that stands over the entire passage. Verse 10 stand, is like an umbrella over the passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And that then is just really the first admonition in a paragraph that's punctuated with a number of imperatives. Three of you come in the first few verses. Look at verse 10. Be strong. Verse 10. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Uh, verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God. T together these three imperatives press home this call, this final call to arms. But the first one governs. The first one governs it. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. It's, it's funny. It's, it's one of those odd imperatives in the New Testament. And as Paul's letters are particularly filled with these imperatives. It's an imperative that it's a command. It tells us to do something. We are to act. But the action is passive. Do you see? You've you got to do it, but... You've you got to be passive. In other words, something has to happen to you. Let something happen to you. It's, it's almost as if that's the way it goes. We, we act by being acted upon. We, we act by receiving. We do by getting from God. And so, perhaps we could render this, be made strong. Be strengthened. Do you see the point? It's very important. Think about it for a second. We've got to be strong. We're supposed to be strong. But that strength has to come from somewhere else. It's not your strength. It's not my strength. It's, it's got to come from somewhere else. From outside ourselves. From outside our resources. From outside our instincts. From outside our cleverness. Which is why Paul says, be strong in the Lord. And then to, to guard against any misunderstanding and to underline the, the foreign source of the strength, he adds the second half of the verse, not only be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We could stay on this verse. There's plenty. Two things. Look at it carefully. Two things in view. External power. In the Lord, in the strength of His might. External. But there's also 
This is where, this is where I think we can sometimes grapple to believe. There is real power. It's serious power. There's three different power terms used in this. Look, and they're different words. Be strong. In the strength, it's a different word, in the strength of his might. So Paul is piling up power terms. Piling up terms that, that just exude strength and capacity, ability. So Paul makes clear and emphatically so real, abundant, multifaceted power available. And so right off the bat, we're confronted with a, a central paradox of the Christian life. We're called to a life that requires supernatural power. We're commanded to be strong. We desperately need power. You're not going to make it without power. But in ourselves, it's not power. My, my pretensions to strength, it's a charade. And I tell you, I, I don't know, for me, um, maybe you can relate, in, in recent months, for a variety of reasons, I, I've never been more in touch with my weakness. I, I've never been more in touch with my need for power. So this text is a gift. It's a gift for me. It's a gift for all of us. Um, one more thing I want to mention about this opening charge. Because of the... Remember, I said this is wrapping up the letter. This is the climax of the letter. Because of its culminating position, this assumes something. This is a summarizing command. We've got to pay attention to that. It assumes and summarizes two things. The source of this power and the nature of this power. The source of this power and the nature of this power. First, the source. We're to be strong. We've alluded to it, but now let's look at it carefully. We're to be strong in the Lord. It's one of the most important prepositional phrases in the whole Bible. <laughs> for, for Paul's readers, and maybe if you've been really meditating on this, you recognize that if you've been going through Ephesians. Six times the... This, this phrase has occurred in this chapter. So the, the readers have become acclimated to this and, and to what it represents. Um, not every occurrence of the phrase means exactly the same thing, a little exegetical caution, but very often throughout Paul's letters and certainly here, that little prepositional phrase is loaded with theological meaning. And here's what it refers to. Our vital Union with Christ. There's entire books written on that phrase. Entire books. Because it speaks of our vital union with Christ. As Christians, perhaps you know this, we've got to become familiar with it though. As Christians, our very existence is in Christ. Uh, we are... If you're a believer in Christ, you're, you're joined to Him. Uh, uh, we exist in Him. 
We, all the benefits of salvation flow to us by virtue of our union with Him. You don't just get salvation. You don't just get justification. You don't just get the Spirit. You don't just get all these blessings. God joins us. He, 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 he regenerates our heart. He joins us with Jesus. And then in that union, all of the blessings flow. They don't just kind of pour out on us haphazardly. No, it's by virtue of that union. And so when Paul, maybe you'll remember this, when Paul took the Ephesians on that cosmic survey of salvation in chapter 1. Did you preach through chapter? Oh, wow. Uh, Blows your mind. Um, Over and over he stresses all of these blessings come to us in Christ. Do you remember that? In Christ. Him. We are blessed. I'm echoing chapter 1. We are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. We have inheritance in Christ. We, we were sealed by the Spirit in Christ or in Him over and over. Chapter 2. We are made alive together with Him. Do you remember that? We are raised with it, it almost gets boring, doesn't it? We, not boring, repetitive. We are, we are raised with Christ. We're seated with Him. You're not just seated up there. No, you're not. You're seated up there with Him. What God, what God has accomplished in Christ, He has included us in. Wow. That... And so, when He says... Be strong in the Lord. It's not sort of spiritual pep talk. It's not rah-rah. It's not a, it's not a cliche. <laughs> because we are in Him. Because we are united to Him. Because we are joined to Him. Think about it like this. Our very lives, our very existence, conducted within the spiritual sphere of His dominion. We live our lives in the spiritual sphere of His dominion. Because of that, therefore, we have access to the power of the one who rules over all things. Amazing. That's the source of the power. And then Paul alludes to the nature of the power. When he he writes... We're doing some review here, right? When he writes... In the strength of his might, he's repeating the exact phrase that he used in chapter 1 in his prayer where he piled up even more power words. One, one of his entreaties, you, don't, you can turn if you want, it's, it's Ephesians 1.19. One of his entreaties is this, so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Hear all those power words? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him far at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And then he prays again in chapter 3. He prays that God would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Do you remember all those things? You can read over them, but you start saying, man, Paul's just, he's all over the power thing here. Uh, And then he ends that prayer, chapter 3, the very end, by praying that he, he praises him who is able to do far 
more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And so when you come to chapter 610, you see the strength of his might. Paul's pointing back. He's saying that power that that we've been talking about for five chapters, it's that power that's available to you. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power, in other words, that God exercised to defeat death itself. There's a worldview behind this. Sin had entered this world. Sin had ravaged this creation. Sin had put all of creation under a curse. Distorting the very image of God in humanity at creation. But what happens? Well, at the resurrection, the resurrection is not, it's not just kind of isolated a thing that happened to Jesus that's good. At the resurrection, God's saving plan that began in the garden, it now burst forth in power. God's, it's like Genesis 1, reworked. The recreation of all things had begun. Christ is the down payment. That Christ's resurrection is the down payment that God's going to rework all things. That God's going to remove all evil and wickedness and weakness and corruption from this creation. So, with sin atoned for at the cross, God's wrath satisfied, God then began to roll back the effects of sin. Sin had spoiled everything, hadn't it? Sin wrecks everything. But after the cross, God began to roll it back. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he's not just being kind to people. It's a a foreshadowing. (laughs) He heals the sick. It's not just Jesus being compassionate. He's showing, no, I came to deal with what created that sickness. I came to deal with what screwed up my creation. I'm rolling it back. That's what happened at the resurrection. It's that power that's rolling back all the effects of the fall. That power is at work in your life. <laughs> that's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's, it's no less. That's what he's talking about. The power that breaks the tyranny of sin. You remember sin you used to be in bondage to? And you're a different person now? That's power. It's a power that gives joy in the face of suffering. We've got a lady in our church who's come to, come to our church. And we don't know if she's going to be there on Sunday. And I don't mean she might miss church. I mean this might be the last. So about every two weeks we get an email, she's back in the hospital. And about three days later, she's out. This wasn't it. And there she is on Sunday, worshiping. I just go, that's just power. And she's blessing everyone in our church. Uh, That's power. Obedience in the face of temptation. It's the power that gives, gives us grace for that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness in the face of cruelty. Cruelty comes at us and we respond with grace. We respond with poise. We respond with forgiveness. Love in the face of persecution. It's that power. It's at work in you. And you know, there's something 
There's something glorious about the whole logic of this. The very, think of it this way, if this power comes from outside, and if we're commanded to have it, the very command to be strong is at one and the same time a promise that it's available. The very command is a promise that God will give us his power because of what Christ accomplished and because by, by inexplicable grace we're joined to him. Though his benefits become ours. The power that he exercised and exercises become ours because where are we? We're in him. So, here's the truth. Here's the truth to speak into your life. There is no trial greater than your ability to withstand in His power. There's no temptation greater than your ability to resist in His power. There's no, there's no intractable circumstance that's greater than your ability to navigate, to endure. Persevere in joy. Whatever you might be facing, it may seem looming, it may seem towering, it may seem impossible. This text just stares it down. It says, no way. Not even close. That's the power that's available to us. But it's command, so what do we do? Be strong. Not in your sorry strength. <laughs> Access this. You see? Oh, it's glorious. Our role is to believe. Our role is to appropriate. That's the charge. So whenever we think about spiritual warfare, don't picture demons flying around. This is where we start. Uh, God's power available to us. All right? That's, that's the first aspect. Our call. Secondly, the second angle of spiritual warfare, our context. Our context. So, after exhorting us to appropriate God's power, Paul then tells us why. Why do we need the power? Well, we need the power because we're engaged in deadly warfare. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No, but, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So that call, then, to access power, it's, it, it's, it's not some sort of you know, self-indulgent, self-aggrandizing call. It's not so you can just strut around being strong, being impressive. No, it, it, it's for a purpose. Three times in, 11, in those three verses we just read, there's, we see a, a sobering purpose clause. That, verse 11, that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, in order to withstand. Verse 13 again, in order to stand firm. Why do we need power? 
where we need power because we're in a struggle to resist an opposing force. We need power to hold our position on a battlefield. We need power to withstand attacks that are coming your way. They're coming. And without power, without God's power, we'll give way. We'll buckle. We'll get knocked down. We'll lose ground. And the way to stand, he says, is to take up the armor of God, which we'll look at in, in a few moments. But the two commands here to put on the armor, so he says twice to put on the armor, right? And those two commands bracket the reason. So in between those two commands, to put it on, we're in a battle with spiritual forces. We, and it's interesting, Paul doesn't just say we war against such things. He says we wrestle with them. Every word in Scripture is important. <laughs> why, did, why does he say wrestle? Any wrestlers in here? I hate wrestlers. I, I, I don't hate them. I, I hate when they hurt me. Because wrestlers just take delight in grabbing you and hurting you and showing you what they used to could do. And it, it, it's just so annoying. Um, anyway, he... He uses a word, though, to underline the closeness and intensity of the struggle. It's hand-to-hand combat, he's saying. Not, not too long ago, I saw a news report about pilots who fly drones, who operate drones over Afghanistan. It was fascinating to me. Um, so th- these drones are there. They're supporting our troops in Afghanistan. They're battling the Taliban in Afghanistan. But those pilots, they're in the States. I forget where. I don't know. Maybe they didn't say. Nevada, Arizona, somewhere. Uh, they fly these aircraft against the enemy, but they're sitting in these air-conditioned facility in front of a computer screen. At the end of the day, and they actually showed this, at the end of the day, they get in their cars, they drive home, they have dinner with their family, you know. They actually showed a guy at his dinner, you know, he's just, yeah, go home, yeah, that was it. I killed, I don't know how many people today. Yeah, all in a day's work. Uh, I thought, I mean, it's 21st century warfare. There's no danger to them, there's no threats, there's, there's no surprises, there's no vulnerability, there's no enemy fire. It's just clinical. It's antiseptic. That's one of the things that I think the story was exploring. So what about warfare, horrible warfare, that's so clinical, that's so seemingly antiseptic? That's not what we see in our time. Our, our warfare is anything but. We're not sitting in an air-conditioned, sin-free, devil-free, temptation-free, trial-free room pressing buttons. We're personally, we're on the mat. We're personally engaged with the enemy. We're we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to his attacks. If we're not wise, we can be exposed to those attacks. Paul is preparing us, God is preparing us for confrontation. It's real. Conflict just jumps up from the page, doesn't it? 
It, it's interesting. Six, six times as he goes through here, Paul doesn't just kind of list the powers, but he, he always he repeats the preposition against, against, against. We stand against the devil. We wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against spiritual forces of evil. You see it? Against, against, against. He wants you to know we're against it. All these categories. And, and don't, the, there's not a strict hierarchy here. Don't get out a map and kind of draw out all the spiritual forces. Don't make a chart. The, these aren't precisely defined categories. Uh, the, the terms all point to the same reality. Spiritual so I can make it simple for you. Spiritual forces allied with Satan and arrayed against God and his purposes and his people. That's what all those represent. You don't have to figure out, am I battling against a principality or a power here? <laughs> no. It, it, they're, they're spiritual forces. They're arrayed. They're, they're allied with Satan and they're arrayed against God and against his purposes and against his people, against us. That's the real axis of evil right here in this text. So this text, like, like no other text really in Scripture, diagnoses our location in this world. Jesus hinted at it. We live in a war zone. Remember Matthew 16? I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. He said the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus had prepared us for this. All right, so let's... let's Let's get out our map. Let's, let's map our location. Because you've got to put this together with other things the Bible says, don't you? God is sovereign over all creation. Isn't he? He's sovereign over all reality, right? But the world is in rebellion against the rightful rule of God. That, that's this world. Satan, so it's this way. Satan, then, is, is, is leading an insurgency operation against the true sovereign. It's an insurgency. Spiritual powers are allied with him. Fallen humanity lies, lies captive to his rule. Unbelievers are, are captive to him. What about us? Or what about Christians? Well, think about other things Paul says. He says to the Colossians, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, right? Transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. He put it this way, last chapter, Ephesians 5, you were once darkness. You were there. You were chained. But now you are, verse 8, now you are light in the Lord. And so God is the ruler. Satan is leading an insurgency. So who are we? Well, we're now part of counter-insurgency operations against these rebel forces. Do you see? We are free. But we're still learning to, to love and serve our true master, aren't we? That's what sanctification is. We're free from the bondage to the, to the devil, but we're still learning. We can fall back. We're still learning to love and serve. And, and we're still ridding ourselves of, of the habits and the mindsets of our former master. And then we live in this world. We work in this world. We pray in this world. We labor in this world to see others freed. To see others freed from their dark 
Lord. To see more and more rebels changed, more and more rebels delivered, more and more rebels transferred into the kingdom of Christ, just like we were. So you're at the grocery store, you're, you're, you're walking around, you're, you're surrounded by... You're not just there to get potatoes. Uh, you're surrounded with people who are under bondage to Satan. And they're culpable. It's their sin that has rebelled against God. Yet, they've allied themselves through that sin with their... And we're counterinsurgency ops. We're there to see more and more set free as we proclaim the gospel. Isn't that exciting? Life's pretty exciting. <laughs> Life's thrilling when we see what's at stake. When we see what's at stake. That's our context. And so, it is not, as verse 12 says, a fight against flesh and blood. Not against flesh and blood. I just want to hammer that into my head because I so often forget. No, it's not against flesh and blood. So often, I'm in that cockpit and I lose my situational awareness and I start thinking, no, my battle is against flesh and blood. You ever gone there? <laughs> In a relational conflict, my, my cosmic perspective just collapses. And my battle is against that flesh and blood person who threatens my interests or my comfort or my preferences or my perspective or my reputation we got to say no right the, the battle is against spiritual foes who desire to tear me apart from God's people who desire to tear me apart from this person who desire to sow discord and anger and bitterness and all that opposes God what he wants to do. And it's tricky. It's tricky. One more thing about our context, an important word in verse 11, we stand against schemes. Schemes. Intelligent strategies and tactics. Intelligent strategies and tactics. The devil is an intelligent foe who carefully devises plans against the gospel and against the church and against believers. And he has a full array, look at your Bible, he has a full array of insidious tactics. He inspires false teachers, 1 Timothy 4. These are all places where the Bible, I'm not just going to come up with these, all places where the Bible connects these things with Satan. So he inspires false teachers, 1 Timothy 4. He inspires temptations, Acts 5. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? Remember that? Physical afflictions, 2 Corinthians 12. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Remember that? Circumstantial hindrances. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. I wanted to come to you, Paul says, more than once, but Satan hindered me. Condemnation. Fear. 
Things that wake you up in the middle of the night and just torment you. Confusion. In fact, the main picture of Satan in the New Testament is one of, is, is a liar and a deceiver. It's the main picture. In, in military literature, um, one reads about, you probably know this phrase, one reads about the fog of war. You ever heard that phrase? What's the fog of war? Well, it's the, it's the confusion and the uncertainty that happens in military engagements where, we, you know, there's all kinds of stuff happening and plans go awry and we don't know where the enemy, what his position is and what, what, what his capability is and what his intent is. Not too long ago, I, I was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine. Uh, he's a pastor in the Dominican Republic and um, uh, a very influential pastor uh, who's uh, who, really his ministry is affecting all of all, all of Latin America, and, and I just I, I was we were talking about situations, and I mentioned just a sense, just kind of offhand, a sense of uncertainty and confusion that I was experiencing in a particular situation, in actually in a cluster of situations, and and I, I I remember saying I said this exact phrase, you know, the best way I can describe it, everything just seems foggy. There, there seems to be no clear direction. It's just foggy. And you know what he said? Just immediately out of my mouth, just matter-of-factly, he just said, Jeff, that's because Satan is involved. My next thought was, duh, Jeff, you idiot. Of course. But I, it, it, it really was a lesson for me. I thought, you know, when, when things are just, what's going on? And I don't know. And I don't know what the right thing to do is. And it seems like this is the right thing to do. And I do that and it goes bad. And I, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to think. And it's just, ooh, ooh fog of war. And I remembered in those situations, I said, yes, I had, I had people to deal with. No doubt. Sin was a factor. Other people's sin was a factor. Other people's unbiblical perspectives, it's just so clear to me. It, it, that's a factor. My own sin is a factor. But I remembered my battle is not against that flesh and blood. Step back. There are, there are smoke bombs landing. And everything's unclear. And my eyes get off Christ. Wrestling with powers. Wrestling with powers. There, there's an even broader context to keep in mind, too. Lest we, get, lest we get confused. Satan is at work indeed, but he works only as God allows. He works only as God allows. And so, and it goes farther. God uses those very schemes for his good and wise purposes. And so we, we battle against powers. But here's the good news for Christians. We battle subjugated powers. We, ba we battle powers that are active, but they are ultimately and decisively doomed. Powers even now that are under the sovereign reign of the true king. And, and their worst, these powers, their worst, their most insidious, their most malignant designs are being woven by God into the fabric of his good 
and wise purposes and plans, even now. So we don't have to fear. Wow. So to battle successfully, we've got to understand our context, the nature of the battle. And it changes everything when you remember the nature of the battle. It changes everything. Three quick things that come to mind. First of all, it makes us alert. It makes us alert. Do you ever go into a day and you just hadn't really had your devotion? You're not thinking. All of a sudden, you're just hit by stuff. It's like you're just disoriented and you immediately sin and you say something. It's like, why did I say that? And, oh, I'm, I'm already in a conflict with my... You, you're just not alert. I, I'm not alert. So, you know, I'm kind of... Being aware of our context makes us alert. There's powers. There's a battle. It's in the, it's in the nursery. Not the nursery room here. We're never, we don't serve God in peacetime. We're never on leave. You go on vacation, Larry's going on vacation. Guess what? He goes right into the face of temptation. <laughs> he doesn't take a vacation from the, from the enemy. Wish we could. There's no sort of temptation-proof booth that we can step into. That's why Peter says, be watchful. Be watchful. Your, your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion. He's seeking who can devour. Be watchful. So being aware of the context makes us, makes us alert. It also makes us compassionate. also makes us compassionate. Th- that, that other person, my unreasonable boss, <laughs> my... Not understanding me in this moment, spouse, my impertinent teenager, <laughs> uh, they're not my enemy. Battle's not with flesh and blood. That person struggling with sin, they're just like me. They're in a battle. We're in a battle, right? We're, we're in a battle. We're battling our own sin, we're battling the enemy. They don't, another Christian battling with sin, they, they don't need my attack. I need to have their back. Because I want them to have my back. Non-believers, especially those who are really unseemly, those who just hate you, they're captive. They're not, they're not the bad guys. They're the captive ones. We live in a world that's broken, isn't it? There's signs of brokenness everywhere. And we're not called to shelter ourselves from that brokenness. We're part of the counterinsurgency to go after folks like that because someone came after you in the sovereignty of God. So when we keep the battle in focus, mission just stays with us. Mission becomes central. Thirdly, we're not only alert, we're not only compassionate, being aware of the battle makes us dependent. Keeps me dependent. You know, texts like Ephesians 6, it does funny things to Christians. It gives rise to all manner of speculation, doesn't it? All manner of charts, all manner of tactics, and like we're going to pray a force field over my city. And, um, and it also can give rise to fear also can give rise to fear. This text, the purpose of this text is not to make us preoccupied with Satan or demons. 
It's meant to make us preoccupied with Jesus. That's what this text is meant to do. That leads to the third and the final facet of spiritual warfare. Our call, our context. Thirdly, our provision. Our provision. After informing us of the nature of the battle, Paul tells us how to fight. It's a battle, but God's made provision. He provides us weapons and armor for this fight. We saw Paul's exhortation already, right? Which is the purpose for the weapons. So that we can stand. So that we can withstand. That's critical. We've been rescued. We've been given great privileges. Chapter 1. We've been forgiven and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 2. You've been given great ground, Christian. But now what do we do? We stand. We hold that ground. And we use these weapons. That's what the weapons are for. And so, beginning in verse 14, Paul lays out in a series of phrases, participles really, that provide the means by which to stand. The means by which to resist. The means by which to hold this glorious ground we've been given. And what I'm not going to do is unpack every one and talk about the ancient. I won't give you a discourse on ancient armor. Um, let me make a few observations about the, the, uh, the weapons in general. First, it's full armor. Take up the whole armor of God. That phrase, whole armor, it's one word in the original. You know the word panoply? Panoply means the complete arms and armor of a soldier. We get our word panoply from this word. It's just, it's just a transliteration of this word. A com- so, take up the complete array of arms and armor. All that a soldier needs, take it up. You've got it. Everything. So these aren't random elements. They're not makeshift. It's not like, whatever you can do to fight the enemy, just, just you know, pick up a microphone and hit him. No, you've got everything that's designed for this. Designed for every battle contingency. You're like special ops. I mean, you've got every... Those guys, they carry like... A, how did, I, can't even, I couldn't even carry what these guys carry. And they're running and swimming and fighting. But, but they, they, they're full array, every contingency, right? That's what we've got. That's important, especially when we think in terms of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is mysterious in certain ways. We don't know everything about it. We don't know all that's behind these principalities and powers. But, although it's mysterious, fighting, fighting it, is not a mystery. Don't be deceived. There's not some esoteric set of supernatural practices for an elite few. Or for those specially called to spiritual warfare. Where is that in the Bible? A few of you... Oh, you take on Satan. The rest of you just stand back and watch. No, everyone, you've got all the weapons. That's what the Ephesian Christians were, were tempted to think in their setting, the background in, in Ephesus of magic and, and, and rites and special, special phrases to use against, against, uh, against you know, the, all these demons and all this kind of stuff. They're prone to superstition and to, uh, they're accustomed to mysterious rites and rituals. Paul just cuts the legs out from under all of that. All of us in Christ Jesus have at our disposal armor and we're meant 
to wield it. We're meant to wield it. And when you do, you're fully equipped. You're ready for every maneuver of the enemy. So it's full. Second characteristic of this armor. The armor is God's own armor. Paul is not being creative here. He's not saying, you know what? I think using warfare imagery would be really good for these Ephesians. No. All of this comes from the Bible. Four of the six pieces of armor are taken directly from Isaiah. Where Isaiah speaks of God taking up His armor, the armor that God himself wears. In other words, this armor, it's manifestations of God's strength, God's power that's available to us, that we are to depend on. So think about this, or be, be clear on this, arming ourselves does not involve specialized knowledge. It doesn't involve certain techniques. These are divine gifts divine virtues. Now, we have to act. We've got to take them up. There's something to do to stand firm. But these implements don't drive us to ourselves or to speculation or to our own resources. They drive us to Christ and to His resources. That leads to the third observation here. The armor is it's complete and the armor is God's. The armor, here's the third observation, the armor is old. <laughs> the armor is old. These aren't new ways and new techniques that, that Paul discovers near the end of his ministry. And now in this later letter of his, he's now unveiling, oh, I wish I'd have said this back when I was writing to the Galatians. But, but now, you know, I've, I, I, I've learned some things for the Ephesians. No, these are old ways. These are tried and true ways. And they're ways Paul has already alluded to in this letter. Remember? Well, we said this is a summarizing text. And so what does Paul do? Well, here he concludes by summarizing gifts and graces that he's already extolled in the letter. Look at them. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. What does he say in Ephesians 1.13? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So, is this some fancy technique? No. We prepare for battle by putting on the truth of the gospel. What does that mean? Knowing and resting in what God has done for us. That's the belt of truth. It's not some fancy thing. I wish I could picture an ancient belt. And No. Take up the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Marvel. Meditate on your identity in Him, what He's done for you, what He promises to do. Breastplate of righteousness, verse 14b, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, two chapters, in four, two chapters ago, chapter 4, Paul says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's already talked about this. So what is righteousness? Well, righteousness is a quality of life that reflects God. And flows from receiving a righteousness not of ourselves. So we pursue godliness. When you pursue godliness, when you seek to mortify sin, when you link arms with brothers and sisters to, to just glorify God with your life, you, you've put on the breastplate of righteousness. Do you see? Third, our feet are to be fitted with the readiness of the gospel. 
You can hear the echoes there of Isaiah 52, can't you? Remember that text, the messenger who scales the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, bringing, heralding peace. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, who herald salvation. So, so part of the battle then, part of the battle involves a constant readiness to announce the gospel. Uh, the good news that God has acted. God has acted to bring sinners to himself. God has acted to destroy the alienation between us and him. So be ready. Be ready with the gospel. Know that's what everyone needs. Know that's what your brothers and sisters in Christ need. When, you, when you're ready with the gospel, that eliminates distraction. It keeps us ever mindful of the true nature of the battle. Shield of faith. And Paul is spent a lot of time in this letter informing and encouraging their faith. Chapter 3, he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Remember that prayer? So faith is not sort of faith in concepts that extinguishes fiery missiles. Faith is, is engaging the personal presence of the risen Christ. What a wonderful weapon for a particular variety of Satan's schemes. With that faith, what do you do? You extinguish a particular, this is a particular strategy, fiery arrows. There's arrows flying. Sometimes Satan's tricks are, are smoke and mirrors. <laughs> Fog, I don't know what's going on. Sometimes they're direct. Sometimes they're lethal. A flaming arrow of just out of, the, out of the blue, seemingly acute temptation. Where did that thought come from? I'm not saying our, our remaining sin is not involved, but I'm saying Satan, Satan cooperates with that. A penetrating doubt. You know, a believer just kind of out of the blue, just go through a season of, of doubt. And once strong, now I'm just not certain about what I've always believed. It's a fiery arrow. A stinging accusation. They said, what? About me? Do they even know me? I, am I like the devil? <laughs> a destructive false teaching. A life-threatening persecution that's happening to some of our brothers and sisters right now in Iraq. How do we stand? By faith. Meeting those arrows by clinging to God's promises. Confronting anxiety with the truth of God's word. Extinguishing fear by resting in God's mighty power. In short, we choose to interpret circumstances through the lens of God and his power, and his wisdom, and his love. That's how I'm going to interpret this circumstance, through the lens of God, and his power, and his wisdom, and his love. Nothing comes to me that gets around those things. Those, anything that comes to me filters through God's wisdom, his power, his love.
Helmet of salvation. What God has done to redeem us. Meditating on that. Appropriating that. The last piece, the sword of the Spirit. Mm. This book. This book is lethal. To the schemes of Satan. Makes an infinity stone look like a chestnut. This is lethal to Satan and his schemes. Whew. Power. This last one, and it's set apart. It's part of God's provision, but it's set apart, and that is prayer. Verse 18. Praying at all times. Not just another weapon. It's set apart because prayer is foundational for all the weapons. It's the way that we deploy all the other weapons. Remember where we began, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Prayer is the primary means by which we do that. It's the way that we depend upon the Lord. And it's the way that we access His power. Prayer accesses power. And so we're to pray at all times, he says. Because the battle is ongoing. Attacks come at any time. We're to pray with all prayer and supplication. Every kind of prayer. For every kind of need. We're to pray in the Spirit. Prompted and guided by the Spirit. Because this is a relationship, right? We're to pray for all the saints. Spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters, it's not an individual struggle. It's not you go away and stand on your own. It's a corporate struggle. We're part of an army. We've got each other's backs. We've got to have each other's backs, don't we? Don't you love it when someone has your back? All right. Well, let's step back. Step back for a moment and think about spiritual warfare. Clear away all the fascination, all the speculation that surrounds this topic. Think about this. What is Satan really after? Satan can kill, yes, But is he really all that concerned about killing a Christian and sending them to the throne of heaven? I don't think so. I think he may want to thwart God's purpose. He he could do that. Yeah. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body, though. What is Satan after? Here's what he's after. He wants to rule our hearts. He wants to take captive people to believe his lies and to do his will. He hates God. And his forces are aimed at capturing and destroying God's image bearers and God's good purposes. All the spiritual powers of evil conspire to this end. So what do we do? Are we helpless? Do we cower? We stand firm. Don't you love this? It doesn't say, just get up all your energy and run at Satan as fast as you can. No, he says, just stand. Stand firm in what God has done for us. And what he promises to do for us. And in us. And through us. We resist. We resist Satan's lies. 
That's the power encounter. That's your power encounter today. To reject lies about God. To resist cravings that displace God in our hearts. To renounce actions that displease God. So we, we reject lies, we resist cravings, we renounce actions. And we do so by believing and applying God's truth. We do so, brothers and sisters, by, by taking up, putting on, living in, don't let go, remind each other of, sing, preach, tell your kids, tell your small group all that God has done for us in the gospel and all he promises to do because of the gospel.